Um, okay, good morning, everybody. This is Charity Rolfs, and today we're so excited to have Andrew Decker join us and um, tell us a little bit more about criminal law, this time from the defense side. So we've already heard about um, how the district attorney operates um, and how the state of Texas can bring cases from you know the time when the, cr the crime happened and all the way through the process. So Andrew's going to tell us now what it looks like from the defense side. Um, so I'm really thankful he's here. Andrew has an awesome uh, background. He started off not in law. He was a minister. So I think he brings great compassion um, and understanding of people to his job, which is really unique uh, for attorneys probably. Um, but I'm really thankful he's here. So I'm going to turn it over and let him tell us all the things. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you, Charity. Um, uh, appreciate the invitation. Let me start by just introducing myself. I'm Andrew Decker. I am a criminal defense attorney. I've been licensed for five years. All I've done is criminal defense. Uh, while I was in law school, I did intern with the DA's office several times and with uh, district courts answering 1107 habeas writs. That is way a far afield of what we're going to talk about today, but um, I have worked uh, with the courts answering those. Uh, I know what they look like. Uh, they're kind of a unique subset. Um, and then, uh, but upon graduation and being barred, I started working with a group of uh, attorneys in Fort Worth as their clerk, um, kind of a glorified paralegal in a sense. I did a lot of writing, a lot of drafting, a lot of editing. Um, and then uh, after a year and a half of that, I opened up my own office, which I'm in right now, uh, in Weatherford, Texas, or just outside of Weatherford, Texas, in Parker County. And then a year and a half later, so I've been barred three years, the same guys that I started working with invited me to come back and put my name on the door. Uh, so I am now part of that office in Fort Worth. So I really have two offices, one in Fort Worth, Texas, one in Weatherford, Texas, uh, and primarily practice in Tarrant and Parker County, but have cases currently in Tarrant, Parker, Johnson, Palo Pinto, Jack, one in McLennan, which is Waco. Um, I've had several in Denton, several uh, in uh, Eastland um, and Dallas. So obviously I travel around. Uh, the advantage of being a prosecutor is you prosecute in one place. Uh, the difference in being a defense attorney is you go where the business is. So it's kind of a have, have law book will travel phenomenon. So uh, I did watch most of the assistant district attorney's uh, presentation or about half of it. And then I had to step away for other things. Uh, I watched it earlier this week. So I'm going to kind of follow her format a little bit. Uh, it, it, respond a little bit to what she said. I think everything she said was true, um, but hopefully give a little bit different perspective. And then also talk about a few things that maybe she did not talk about. Um, and if you do have questions and we're online, please send them to me or uh, get them to me and I'd be glad to answer them. So let's start with uh, the levels of the court. Uh, she talked about that there are JPM municipal courts, which handle traffic tickets uh, basic citation fine only offenses. Uh, that is the, you, you are in, you have a right to an attorney and I get hired on those kind of cases in a few weeks. I'm going to trial, um, in a, in a JP court, uh, or a citation only offense. A guy basically, he and his neighbor got an argument and, um, he's charged with assault, a simple assault, which would be con offensive, or provocative touching, 
nope, no pain has to be involved. Um, but basically, uh, he's been charged with touching his neighbor, um, to wit, slapping him in the back of the head and saying, you're drunk, go home. Um, seems like maybe not an offense. But so we're actually going to trial in a JP court. He's not, a, he has a right to an attorney, but the courts have not yet said that he's entitled to an attorney at that level. So he has to hire an attorney if he wants one. You're, you have a, you have a uh, right to an attorney when you get to the higher levels of court. So misdemeanor courts, felony courts, which are really the only two left. And depending on your jurisdiction, the misdemeanor courts, uh, class A, class B misdemeanors um, are uh, run by a county attorney and other places that office is still the district attorney. Uh, so I just want to clarify that even though you have a right to an attorney at that lowest level, the JP or the municipal court, if you want an attorney, you actually have to hire them. You cannot be appointed an attorney. And the reason being is that your liberty is not at stake. You do not have a constitutional protection at that point um, uh, that, that your liberty is not going to be taken away. So we, our, our land, our life, and our liberty are constitutionally protected, but our money, um, fine only offense, is not constitution, constitutionally protected. And so they do not uh, grant you, assign you, appoint you an attorney at those those levels, at that lowest level. Just something I wanted to, I wanted to make sure y'all knew. So what is the role of a, of a defense attorney? This is an interesting piece. This is literally from the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association uh, website. Uh, they say the TCDLA, and I read it as basically every defense attorney in the state of Texas, our duty, our role is to protect and ensure by rule of law those individual rights guaranteed by the Texas and federal constitutions in criminal cases. So Charity told you I was previously a minister. I did that for 15 years. Um, and literally, I was on the phone yesterday with a paralegal friend of mine here in Weatherford. And uh, she knows me very well. Uh, we're in business groups together, but we also have done some legal stuff together. And uh, she kind of got me on a roll and I started going, but we have this right and this right. And I think they overstepped these bounds. And she starts giggling and I was like, and I, and I said, Rochelle, you have to understand next to Jesus, the constitution is really important to me. <laughs> um, so, so these things get me fired up and um, uh, I, well, it, it's part of what has helped build for me a good reputation uh, in the area, in this part of the world as a good defense attorney. Um, but generally I'm also a nice guy. So I've also earned a reputation as a amenable attorney in the sense that I'm going to be professional. I'm going to be courteous. I'm going to be those things. But when it comes to those rights guaranteed by the Texas and federal constitutions, I start getting really uh, passionate very quickly. So, so we all know we have a U.S. constitution. And, and for those of you who don't know, uh, this Tuesday was constitution day, uh, Tuesday, September the 17th, uh, 1787 is when the constitution, the original constitution of the United States was ratified. Um, and so it's kind of fun to talk about the Constitution on such a week. Uh, so we have constitutional rights in Texas and in the United States. And the ones that are up on the board right now are, are ones that I have had to argue or have come up in cases I've worked on uh, in court. The, the, these are not kind of when you start talking about really what's going on. Um, 
the, the, the defense attorney is often the one that starts talking about your constitutional rights, your rights under the law, your rights to be free, uh, things that we would take very much for granted uh, in the United States and in the state of Texas. We have those rights, and it's often someone like me or uh, one of my colleagues who is arguing those rights and arguing um, for those things. And so I just kind of want to go through them and let you know uh, where they sit in the U.S. Constitution and in the Texas Constitution, and maybe even how they differ. So the freedom of speech uh, is obviously the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, we have a freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, and freedom of speech, and freedom of the press. In other words, uh, you can't hold me um, uh, criminally, you can't criminally charge me for saying either I love Donald Trump or I hate Donald Trump. Both those are protected. I can say it all I want. Um, it may not be smart, depending on who I'm with, to say one or the other, uh, but I can say either one. I have that freedom. Um, but the freedom of speech is not unlimited. We all understand that you cannot uh, yell fire in a crowded theater. That's the, that's the rule that the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court came up with years ago. We understand that there are times where you can't just say anything you want at any given time. It doesn't make sense. So uh, there are some limitations on that. I've literally tried a case where a lady was charged with threatening an officer. Uh, she called the, the police department and she had a problem with the police officer. She had an ongoing issue. Um, she should have just left it alone. They weren't doing anything to her, but she kept calling and threatened the officer and said, if I ever find him, I'm going to and, and listed off a heinous way of killing him. Um, and I argued unsuccessfully uh, that she had a freedom of speech. She has a right to be able to say, I am disgruntled, uh, that basically she's airing a grievance against the state and that's protected. Um, I didn't win that. Uh, and uh, I would say, sadly, uh, it's really at her own um, peril uh, that we went to trial and I told her not to go to trial. We'll talk about pleas in a little bit. I want to follow up on those. Uh, that, that she ended up being sentenced to uh, about three and a half years in the state penitentiary. Uh, but the freedom of speech actually comes up in criminal trials. It happens. But it's also protected under Article 1, Section 8 of the Texas Constitution. And under the Texas law, we actually have more freedom. We have more rights than we do under the U.S. law. They're more clearly defined. And it says that no law shall ever be passed curtailing the liberty of speech or the press in the state of Texas. Um. And so I argued that under the under the Texas Constitution, that, that saying that I can't threaten a cop, um, that the, we're basically giving a police officer greater protection than we would a, a normal citizen, and we're telling the rights of the citizen of the state of Texas or the person in the state of Texas from being able to express their feelings by protecting a cop from from a threat that probably never would happen. Um, Second Amendment, right to bear arms. Uh, we have a right to own weapons, own guns. Uh, we talk about this on a regular basis. It is in the news. Um, uh, you know, and, and sadly, right now, those of you who are in Midland um, are kind of in the, in the, for lack of a better term, kind of cleanup mode uh, from that. Uh, a little over 20 years ago is 20 years ago, I think last week. Uh, I was blocks away from the Wedgwood Baptist shooting. I was literally working as a pastor at the Methodist church closest to that. 
and was in a Bible study and we got phone calls saying, hey, there's a so so I understand that fear and that 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 reality. Uh, but we do have a right to bear arms. And again, uh, the text Constitution also grants us that right. Uh, Article one, Article one is the Constitution for Texas uh, or the Bill of Rights. Section 23, bearing arms. Uh, we have a right to bear arms to defend ourselves and to defend the state, according to the Constitution. But in Texas, it actually says the legislature has a right to curtail the wearing of arms in view of public safety. Uh, so it's interesting that we have uh, an open carry law, a right to carry law. And at the same time, our legislature is actually given the power to legislate for public safety, the wearing of. And so they can make you actually get a license. They can make you have certain rules, um, certain places we can carry them, certain places we can't. Uh, so, for example, going to court, I go to court almost every day. It's unusual. I won't go to court today. Um but in the courtroom, uh, the the concealed carry license, the, the the right to carry, extends to obviously the bailiffs, the law enforcement in the room. Uh, it extends to the judges, and there's at least one judge that I know who literally has a sidearm under his robe, uh, and I know that because he's told me uh, as I was preparing to speak on um, changes to gun laws a couple of years ago, and I kind of knew that I knew the guy well enough to know that. Uh, and then the prosecutor has a right. So, so that ADA the other day has a right to carry a gun. But as a defense attorney, I do not. I do not have a right to bear arms in a courtroom in the state of Texas. Um, I'm the only officer of the court not allowed to, to, to arm myself uh, against an attack. Uh, and again, the legislature has written it that way. And I've argued the right to bear arms. So it comes up usually following a um, uh, a family violence case. So anyone who's found guilty and, and in their finding of guilt, there's a finding of family violence. That person cannot, under Texas and U.S. law, own a firearm. Well, okay, so obviously, one of the, the, there are some reasons for that. One of them is that persons who commit mass shootings, the single, they are the single most common piece aside from them being white males, ironically, is the next piece is they've had a charge at some point of family violence. So, and persons who are, who are killed uh, by their, killed or, or seriously wounded by their, their spouse usually have had some form of family violence in the home prior to uh, that final act. So it becomes reasonable. But let me explain this, that the defining of family violence does not have to be uh, that someone has, has an ongoing abusive relationship. Um, and families extended pretty far out under the laws. So you have a roommate you're not, you, you've agreed to live together for 12 months under a contract. You all, as you're splitting up your property, you're moving out, uh, but you're still living together, uh, are arguing about who owns the microwave y'all bought at Walmart for $37.95. And in that, one of you puts it in your stuff and the other one goes and picks it up and takes it back to their stuff. You know, y'all are just trying to divvy up your items. 
and one of you pushes the other one. And they fall, you know, they, they, they might have a little mark on their chest from the push. They might, their butt might hurt from falling on the ground, but there are no serious injuries. Well, in the argument, the neighbor calls the cops because you live in an apartment. They can hear it. They call the police. The police come out and they separate the two of you. And they say, what's going on? Well, we're just hard. We're, you know, we still got a week together. We're trying to divvy up our stuff. Most of it's real clear. Um, you know, yeah, you know, I, one of you goes, yeah, I pushed my roommate. And the other one goes, well, they pushed me and, you know, they pushed me right here. And you know, my, I'm probably going to have a bruise in the morning and my, and my butt hurts because I fell on the ground. And they go, okay. And so they arrest the one who shoved the other one. Now we're in court and the charge is going to be an assault family violence with bodily injury. And you go, really? It's pain that's going to last 10 minutes, but that's enough. If it causes pain, it's enough to be a bodily injury. So that person who, who, who ending a year-long relationship with a roommate, not romantic, not related, may never see each other again, but because they were living together uh, and in that argument over the microwave, and it comes to $37 microwave, why are we fighting about this? Um, there's a push, and now the state of Texas and the federal government, if that family violence binding ends up on a charge, ends up on a, on a plea of guilty or a finding of guilt, they cannot own a firearm under the laws of the state of Texas or under federal law. And federal laws forever, Texas will, will, will kind of allow that right to come back in time. And so literally, I will argue about that, that you know, part of the reason we don't want to do this, we don't want to have a family violence filing is, is that this guy has no, or this woman, and there, there sometimes it's women, um, has no, um, no history of violence, no history of being unreasonable. Um, and they live in an area that likes to hunt. And basically, they're going to lose that right for over arguing over something. And sometimes... The one who's bruised will say, I don't want to press charges. And because they called the cops, the, the, the police, law enforcement now has the discretion. And most of them will do it automatically. Take the person, the other person into custody. And, and, and again, you end up with family violence finding, which will then infringe upon your right to bear arms. So uh, it does get argued. Uh, the Fourth Amendment uh, is your search and seizure. You have a right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, and in Texas, that is called, well, it's in Article 1, Section 9. Um, but there's also the Texas exclusionary rule. So if uh, under, the text con uh, under the U.S. Constitution, the, you are free to be uh, free from unreasonable searches and seizures. And the presumption is that if there's not a warrant, it is unreasonable. Well, there are lots of ways to work around that. Um, and the places where searches happen without a warrant happen often when you get stopped for doing 38 and a 30. I literally have a case right now. That was the charge. Um, or for driving in the left lane where left lane is passing only signs are posted or um, you're driving down the road and, and well, you're looking at the radio and messing with your kid in the back and, and you're, you know, somebody sends you a text. And so you're distracted driving and you kind of do that little bit of a weave, your, your tires cross the white line and an officer lights you up and suddenly you're sitting on the side of the road and they go, 
Um, where are you coming from tonight? Have you had anything to drink? And you seem a little nervous. Why? Because your kid's in the back. Uh, you're worried about something at the house. You've had a long day. And the officer goes, you sure seem real nervous tonight. Uh, why don't you step out of the car for me? Okay. And because you've stepped out of the car, they're then going to uh, basically frisk you for weapons, they say, for officer safety. Um, so they pat you down. It's just got to be kind of a simple pat. You know, they, they can't they can't grab. It's much more like a Terry Frisk, That's but they can pat you down. And they they feel something that, well, it's not a weapon. And they kind of, they, they may, they may, they may grab a little bit and feel it. Well, that, that's, that's not what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, but they find just a little bag, a little bag. Or they find your cigarette pack in your coat pocket. And they pull it out. Well, why? Because they know from their experience and their training that often people take their cigarettes out and put marijuana in there. And suddenly you've been searched. Or he gets you out of the car and you go, hey, do you have anything illegal in the car? No, 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 sir. Not, nothing illegal. Uh, you mind if I mind if I take a look? And they will literally, they can take your car apart uh, with your permission. You've said, no, I don't have anything illegal, nothing going on. You're thinking, I just want to get out of here. And he finds, um, well, a, a, a marijuana, a, what, whoa, what you and I would, what you might call a pepper grinder. That's what it's going to look like. And he's going to call that a grinder. And that's paraphernalia. So then he has more right to search because now there's there's reasonable for a crime. Um, and, and, and you consented. You told him it's OK. So it's reasonable because you said, yes, please search my car. I want you to find uh, paraphernalia. Um, and, and I'm not saying any of you carry anything like that. But this is the reality of what gets dealt with on a regular basis. Um, and and. The Supreme Court uh, in Texas and the United States or Court of Criminal Appeals and the Supreme Court of the United States have said that things like consent, um, uh, a reasonable suspicion uh, of a crime, especially with there be a, a vehicle that becomes like an exigent circumstance. Why? Because you can drive away and hide cleaning out your car before the cops get back. Uh, those become means where someone can search your vehicle uh, and possibly find things that well, you may have forgotten where they're. They may have been. They may be relatively old, um, and suddenly uh, you've got a problem. Just like sometimes, if you have kids, you will find that uh, half-drank bottle of milk that's been in the car in the summertime for a few days, and you're like, "Dude, that was Sunday morning on the way to church. We were having donuts, and oh, I should have cleaned that out." And it's now just Tuesday, and you have to be very careful. Why? Because you forgot about the bottle of milk. Not a crime, but it's going to be disgusting when you try to get it out of the car. Well, the Texas exclusionary rule says, and that's Code of Criminal Procedure Article 3823A, uh, says that any any evidence uh, that's illegally obtained cannot be used against you in a court of law. An unreasonable search or seizure is an illegal taking. That information, that evidence, whatever it is, cannot be used against you in that court of law. Um, uh, the cops can't steal from you, just like I can't steal from you. Um, right to remain silent. Uh, 
The problem is not that you have a right to remain silent. The problem is most people, when they're being asked and questioned by the police, is they do not know how to remain silent. They will talk. Well, why? You're nervous. You've told to kind of, you've been told all your life to do um, to be cooperative with law enforcement, uh, to respect them, and so they ask you, "Where are you coming from tonight?" Well, if I'm doing 38 and 30, what difference does it make where I was coming from? But you go, "Well, I'm coming from," and, and name the local barbecue joint that sells beer. Okay, here here in Willow Park, it's the Railhead, uh, and they're like, "Well, I'm coming from the Railhead." He goes, "Yeah, yeah, tonight's Tuesday. It's." Um, Steve Helms is playing tonight, didn't he? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's a good guy. We love him. Um, so did you have anything to drink all you there? Well, yeah. And and funny, the answer is always, I had two beers, um, and then he's getting you out and doing cold sobriety tests. Well, why? Because you answered his questions. You have a right to remain silent. The difficulty is using that right. And it's also protected under the Texas Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, uh, the rights of the accused so it actually covers a couple of the U.S. constitutional rights. But the right to remain silent, often the, the, the number one thing that I'm asked currently, take my time, the number one thing I'm asked currently by, by a new client is, why was I not read Miranda? I wasn't Mirandized. We've watched TV. Everyone has, has watched uh, a crime show or a movie where as soon as they arrest them, you know, they kind of lean them over and they go, you're being arrested for the murder of blah, 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 because it's always a murder if it's on TV. Um, and you have a right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney, blah, blah. And, and they go on. And we kind of all we all know the dance. We know what it sounds like. We know what it looks like. And so, you know, an officer stops you on the side of the road or comes to your door, um, knocks on your door and you answer it. You know, you reach over and answer the door. There's a door over here. And you answer the door and say hello. And he goes, hey, I want to ask you about last week. You have the right to go, no, sir, I need you to leave now and close the door. But we will kind of automatically go, well, what do you want to know about next week? Well, you're not in custody. Uh, and you're not being interrogated while in custody. You're being asked questions that any citizen could ask and any any person that comes up and asks you, you don't have to answer questions. So people don't get Mirandized because they're not in custody. You can even be detained. Again, you're on the side of the road. You're not free to leave. You're detained. You, you can't leave, but the officer can ask you questions because you're not in you're not in custody. You haven't been arrested yet. Um and there's actually a, a piece in the DWI that uh, I won't talk about now. I truly get upset about uh, because the officer literally says, you are now under arrest for the offense of DWI. And then he goes on and reads a whole bunch of other stuff and then asks uh, some more questions. I think that automatically that's that he should, they should be Mirandized in the middle of that sentence. Why? Because the Constitution demands it. Uh, so the Sixth Amendment uh provide you in a right to an attorney. I've talked about that. Uh, you don't, you have a right to an attorney at any level of court, but you cannot be appointed one unless you're uh, liberty, unless you can be jailed for the offense uh, uh, at every level. Um, and again, the United States, that's U.S. Sixth Amendment 
Texas, Article 1, Section 10, again, that's the right of the accused. You have a right to speak for yourself or have an attorney speak for you. Um, and the, the next piece, I'm going to talk about a piece that kind of crosses over into due process of law. Often, especially in misdemeanor, so you can be in jail for up to a year, up to 365 days on a misdemeanor in the state of Texas, Class A or Class B. I've had cases where before someone who was an appointed an attorney, the, 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 the county attorney made an offer and said, hey, six months in jail or, or 24 months deferred or something. And the person knows enough to know that they don't know what the answer should be. And so they very honestly say, I think I need an attorney. Well, the guy was offered 12 months I think probation. He asked for an attorney and the offer immediately became 18 months. So by him exercising his constitutional right, the plea offer, and this is probation, so he get to go home, he get to go do what he wants to do, basically. Um, but because he asked for an attorney, he practiced his constitutional right to say, I'm signing something. I don't know what I'm signing. I need someone to help me. The offer went up. Well, before we went back to court, happened to run into the elected county attorney, and he 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 happened to ask me. Uh, John asked me, uh, Andrew, how 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 are things going? You know, you're kind of new to the area. What's going on? Tell me. And I said, actually, things are great, John. You know, I'm really impressed with your office. And then I went, wait, I had one where the offer changed when he asked for an attorney. The offer went up, and John looked at me really carefully, and I said, John, I'm I'm not. Why would I, why would I make that up? And he said, well, you tell me who? And I said, John, I, I don't feel like that's fair. Uh, I, I don't, you know, it's a one-time deal. I don't know if it's a one-time mistake or whatever, uh, but I want you to know that that changed. I went back like two weeks later for this guy uh, and the attorney goes, without me saying anything, he said, Hey, Hey, I didn't, I didn't change that because he asked for an attorney. I was just trying to get him to plead and get it done with. And, and, and I was like, obviously they talked about it in their office. Um, I have not had that experience since then. Uh, my guess is that it's probably happened several times. Just no one has pointed it out to, to the, to the boss. So having a right to an attorney should not just like your right to remain silent, uh, should not hurt you. Uh, in in court, my job is not to. Well, my job is to help you, help 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 the accused. And then due process of law is the Fourteenth Amendment, um, and it's kind of mixed under Article One, Section Three, and Article One, Section Ten in Texas. Uh, basically, that we are all equal under law, and we all have a due process of law. Uh, it's kind of the catch-all now at this point. It is how. How the 14th Amendment of uh, the United States is how the 1st, 2nd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th, etc. amendments have been uh, open to the states. Uh, they were not prior to the Civil War, even for the first few years following. Um, uh, but that's how they, how they get in there. That basically all of us are equal under the law. All of us have a right to due process under the law. We have a right, uh, basically, to confront witnesses, etc. So those are the constitutional rights under Texas and the United States. She went through some of those. I wanted to kind of follow up on them, tell you a little bit also that Texas has them as well. 
So the ADA the other day talked about plea agreements. And, and there were some questions as to why people take a plea, why pleas change, why, you know, what's going on. Um, uh, so all of us have a right to trial, but about 95 to 98%, it's really almost 98% of all criminal cases plea. In other words, or, or are worked out prior to trial. Um, it could be that it's your first offense, you're, you're 20 years old, you have a little bit of marijuana, and the, the, the DA doesn't want you to end up with a criminal record. And so they say, hey, in the next 90 days, I want you to do community service, uh, you submit three clean UAs. In other words, pee in the cup, comes back, there's no marijuana in your system, and take a drug education course. So you kind of do some do some betterment of yourself, betterment of the community, kind of figure out how things are going on, and then we'll dismiss your case. Okay. So that would be one that got worked out prior to trial, but it's not really a plea. It's called a memo agreement or a pretrial diversion or something to that effect, depending on your jurisdiction. Well, why do pleas happen? Well, on a misdemeanor, again, a little bit of pot, DWI, uh, an assault, family violence, bodily injury, not serious bodily injury. Um, you can be taken into custody, and if you don't have the if you don't have the money to make bail and your uh, jurisdiction doesn't give you a PR bond, a personal recognizance bond, you can be held in custody for a couple of weeks before you get into court. So you've been held in the county jail for, let's say, 10 days on a, well, we'll use DWI, okay? Uh, I, I don't drink and drive, but, you know, you've had a few too many drinks at that barbecue joint or at the club or whatever, or at your friend's house, and you're driving home, and you're just a little over the legal limit. They throw you in the county jail. You don't have money to bond out. Why? Because you're a college student. And you're then brought in front of a judge with an, with an attorney that probably met with you one afternoon and you're in court the next morning. And they say, so the offer is uh, 30 days county jail and a $200 fine plus court cost. Well, you get three for one, three, three days credit in most county jails for every day that you're there, especially if you're a trustee. And if all you've got is a DWI and you're, you're of sound mind, sound mind and sound body, they make you a trustee. Why? Because that means you can work in the kitchen, you can work in the laundry room. In, in, in Parker County, you're out mowing the grass. You're doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, so being a trustee is a good deal. So you're, you've been in there 10 days, they give you three for one, and they tell you, well, it's a Friday morning. If you stay until Sunday morning, even your court costs, you will owe nothing. At that point, do you care if you're guilty or innocent? You're going, I can spend two more nights and I'm done? At that point, you, you, you don't care if the stop was good. You don't care um, if, uh, if there's some problem with the issue. You don't, you're just like, Sign me up so I can be done. I literally had a case where on in the police report, the reviewing officer said, I have questions as to the guilt of, of, of the defendant. The officer reviewing the file said, I don't think he's guilty. I said to the judge on a jail run just like that. I said, judge, this person needs to be granted a personal recognizance bond because literally there is doubt in the paperwork. And for him, he either has to take a plea to go home or he sits here until we can get this worked out. And the judge said, 
judge denied my personal card response. He said, I'll lower it from $1,500. Well, that didn't help my guy out at all. He was homeless. Um, and so he ended up taking the deal so he, he so that he could leave, so he could get out of jail. So when you're in custody, plea agreements become convictions very quickly because you want to get out of jail. We all want that get out of free, free jail card, just like Monopoly. And it feels like that when they offer you a deal and you can go home today or in a few days versus the unknown. So there's obviously fear. I've had several cases where I've told my client, this is a case you need to try. Um, the risk is not that, you know, the, the fear and risk are related. So um, they've been offered 20 month, 24 months probation, which is the most you can get on a misdemeanor. And uh, I said, I think we can beat it. I think there's some issues with the stop. I think well, not with stop, but with, with what happens on video, they don't draw your blood. I think we can win. I think there's some problems with the, with the, with the uh, witness, not the cop, but the guy that called. Um, I said, I think we can win this and it, it can't get worse. They're not, it's your first offense. They're not going to put you in jail. And they're so afraid of court. They're so afraid of the unknown. They're so afraid of the process that they will plea to, to, to a little bit better deal than the 24 months just to be done. And so, so a plea happens because of that. Then there's risk. On misdemeanor, the fear and the risk are, are it's the fear is greater than the risk. Because again, a misdemeanor, you can't spend more than a year in jail. And most jurisdictions, um, unless you already have a felony conviction, are going to probate you. You're going to get on probation. Why? Because it costs less. It costs less to the county, it costs less to the taxpayers. So they, they don't want you sitting in custody. Well, let's talk about risk. Um, I, I recently had a case where a guy is habitual. It's a felony. Um, he has been to the bin to been to the penitentiary twice, once for four years, once for five years. And he actually didn't spend that long there. It was on drug cases. He, he's an addict, just being honest. Um, and he's now in his, his mid fifties. He's not a young man. He didn't start using uh, meth until he was in his 40s. Uh, basically, his life kind of cratered and in the midst of a midlife crisis, took some stupid steps. He was offered 10 years. So if you're habitual in the state of Texas, the least you can get from a jury is 25 years. So the sentence is 25 to life. He was offered 10 years pre-indictment while he was in custody. And he said, to his, at that point, appointed attorney, no. Um, he was then offered 20 years. He said yes, but when he went to sign, his sister talked him out of it, said, I don't know that this is a good deal. So he says no, and that pissed off the county attorney or the district attorney, and suddenly the offer became 30. I got hired late as it's getting ready for trial, and we I went back to the district attorney because I, I was new to it, ask him, Tell him, give me the background. He's only been in the pen for four and five years. Why did we jump to 25? Why are we jumping to 30? Um, and literally, I sat down with him and said, look, 
The 25, while it sucks, is the very, very least you can get. And at the end of the day, the evidence shows that you had meth. Because there was a basically a lunch bag that he used kind of as his man purse, you know, with those insulated lunch bags. And he, um, uh, in that lunch bag, there was, there was a little bit of meth, um, more than he should have had. It was you know, but, but just over, uh, just over a gram, um, and his bank card. And it was sitting right at his feet in this car that he wasn't driving. And I said, look, you're going to be found guilty. You need to take the 25 because I think a jury in Parker County on an habitual will will start the bidding at 35 or more. You will it'll, it'll be for a long, long time. And so sometimes the, the plea agreement becomes an issue of risk. Is it worth the risk of trial? And that becomes a real issue for people. I mean, I, I don't want to I, I wouldn't want to take that risk. I, I don't think. And then finally, cost. If you can afford an attorney, you may be in, you will be responsible to pay that attorney. Now, at this point, depending on the, the where you are, somewhere between the lowest I've seen is 50. The highest I've seen is 80 percent. And especially of felonies, of felonies, it gets 75 to 80 percent of all persons have an appointed attorney. I'm on the wheel. I, I can be appointed to cases. I get hired on cases as well, so I, so I do both. Um, but if you're hiring me, you're going to pay me a certain amount up to the point of a trial. And then if there's a trial, the work level, the, the I can't do anything else for those, you know, three days plus a couple of days beforehand and my weekend before a shot because I'll end up thinking about it. I wake up early in the morning. I, I go in, I'm making notes. I, I find myself crossing, examining witnesses in my sleep. Um, so I end up charging you a lot of money to go to trial. Well, the cost, is it worth this much money for the risk and the fear? And so a lot of people will go, I just can't afford to do it. And so they take maybe a, well, they may say, hey, I'm not guilty, but I can't, I can't afford to do it. And, and I'm not putting my hands in the hands of, of an appointed attorney at that point. So plea, plea agreements happen for lots of reasons. Um, and often we'll look at people and go, I hear you telling me you're not guilty. So, and I'll tell them, if you say you're not guilty, you didn't do it, you don't take a plea. Well, the DA will, will that, that offer of five years on a third degree felony where you get two to 10 drops to three and they realize I could be in jail for eight months eight months to a year and then be released on parole. If I don't take it, we're going to go to trial. It could be, and, and they'll be like, and, I, and they'll say, I want to take the deal. And I said, okay, you've told me you're not guilty, but you're going to stand in front of that judge and you're going to plead guilty because you are guilty. Not because I forced you to, not because I told you to, not because I told you it's a great deal. And they'll say yes. Um, are they guilty or not? Sometimes my, my answer is in their hearts. I don't know if they are or not. I can tell you what the evidence says, but evidence, evidence that's given their evidence right there at the, at the moment isn't all there is. So let's talk about the burdens of proof. Um, the, the, the DA the other day talked about three of these. I want to talk about 
a little bit farther back because I end up arguing all of them uh, at some point. The bottom, at the very bottom of your screen, you see reasonable suspicion, what an officer needs in order to make a traffic stop. They need specific and articulable facts along with rational inferences. So again, uh, it can't be more than a hunch. Kind of, a, well, they left the railhead, so they must be drunk. That's a hunch. There's nothing articulable there. Unless he watched me uh, literally drinking at the bar and then get in my car, he has no articulable facts that just because I'm leaving the railhead, which is also dinner place um, and a barbecue place and a lunch place that, uh, that I, that I'm DWI. So he's got to have specific and articulable facts along with rational inferences that I'm breaking the law. So if he clocks me at 38 and a 30, well, that's a specific and articulable fact that whoever, Whoever's driving, that's breaking the law, and so he has a right to, to make a traffic stop. Okay. Probable cause is the next level. This is the legal standard for an arrest or a search. Uh, the reasonable person, the uh, reasonable belief that a person committed a crime more than reasonable suspicion. So it's a little bit higher burden. Um, uh, so if the officer makes that stop and says, wow, smells like a lot of alcohol in that car for one person. You know, your breath smells and, you know, and you kind of have that, hey, officer, Ooh. look on your face. That might be probable cause for him at least to detain you and then uh, follow up uh, with some stuff on that. When I prosecuted um, the DWIs, I, I feel like I heard the officers, it felt like they always saw the same things like glassy eyes, bloodshot eyes, the smell of alcohol was very strong. I mean, it was like the same and the person was always speeding or swerving. Like there was something about their driving that alerted the police. Right. Right. Um, th that's exactly right. The, the, they're always going to read the same. And in fact, if you want to know, I'm not going to talk a lot about DWIs right now, but I'll give a plug. Uh, a friend of mine and I, Andrew Harris and I started a podcast in our October two sessions um, uh, on Andrew and Andrew on Texas criminal defense are both on DWIs. Um, and we talk about that. It's always glassy eyes. It's always slurred speech. It's always, they couldn't find the driver's license. They seem nervous anyway, but that's enough to have probable cause to get you out and, and, and walk the line kind of deal. Preponderance of evidence. This is the first one that the, the ADA talked about uh, is enough. It's kind of that, the scales are tipped slightly in, in one direction. It's enough to get money. Um, more likely than not, it's probably true that, you know, the automobile accident caused this person's injuries. And so the driver who's, who caused the accident should pay for those injuries. That's what we're talking about. Um, the reason I, I, can't, I came back to him really for the legal burdens was to cover the bottom two. And this is actually a slide I use um, in trial during Boyd Iron, during jury selection, so that they can see this, so they can see what all is not. Notice it says not guilty in big letters. Everything we're talking about so far, not guilty. Uh, the next level is the clear and convincing evidence. And, you know, and the prosecutor will always say it's the legal burden used to remove a child from his parents. 
Well, the, the case law defines clear and convincing evidence that the trier of fact must have a firm belief or conviction in the truth of the allegation. And so I look at people and I say, what do you have a firm belief in? If I, if I say I have a firm belief in something, I'm almost willing to die for that belief. I'm going to stand there and come hell or high water, not move from it. I can be that convinced and my client is not guilty under the law. And so when you realize that, you realize beyond a reasonable doubt is just a little bit higher. It's a very high standard. Um, uh, doesn't mean that, that people can't be found guilty. Doesn't mean that they are not guilty, but um, or not that they didn't commit the crime, but they may not be able to be proven guilty. Uh, but but I want you to hear the main reason I put this in was for those bottom two and for you to hear under the definition of the law, under case law, firm belief of a conviction in the truth of the allegations is less than the burden of beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, you know, and so juries go back in the back and, and they kind of go, well, you know, I'm pretty sure he did it. Technically, I don't think that that's enough. I wouldn't stand and come hell or high water go, well, I'm pretty sure he did it, so let's find him guilty. But again, I'm a criminal defense attorney, so I'm, I'm, I know I'm biased, all right? Uh, so, but I want you to see those one more time. You're, most of you are studying to be paralegals. Some of you might be taking the class for other reasons. So I want to talk about pretrial motions uh, because it's not a glorious form of the law but it is what you will end up helping with a lot. These are very important. Um, my assistants uh, write letters to clients. They uh, will draft basic pieces for me, but sometimes I'll say, hey, I need you to edit this motion to quash uh, or this motion to suppress as we get ready because I, because I think there's a problem. And I'm actually gonna go through each one of these. These are ones that I've used in, used in court and sometimes have had them uh, be definitive enough that prior to trial, the, the, the case gets thrown out. So I'm going to use the motion to suppress. I told you about the guy that had the meth, was now at 25 years to life. We're preparing for trial. He turns down the offer one more time. And so I literally am now scouring. And I got hired last minute because he didn't want to take a deal and um, he fired, he basically fired his court appointed attorney and his sister came in and hired me. And the reason for the stop was that the officer said that the car was driving the left lane of I-20 uh, going westbound in Parker County. And the left lane is designated with multiple signs as left lane for passing only. And there wasn't a lot of traffic. So then I start searching case law on left lane for passing only. Is that really enough? Well, it's considered a traffic control device, so it is enough. But then I started thinking about, I was like, I, I, don't, I don't recall those signs. So literally, I drove it on Labor Day of this year. Well, my wife drove and I put my, literally used my iPhone. 15 miles had passed from the last sign to where my guy was stopped or actually the lady driving the car was stopped 15 miles 
he had gone through, they had gone through a construction zone. They had passed through a city limit. The speed zone had changed two or three times. I filed a motion to suppress and the DA very rightfully, you know, right. You know, emails back and go, Hey, we just can't handle this for trial. We can, you know, ask the jury to step out because this would be a, uh, outside the presence of the jury argument. Um, and I emailed back and I said, Hey, Jeff, no, I think this is one because if, the, if, if I win this, we don't need a jury. That was on Thursday afternoon. Um, uh, about three, about five thirty, I get an email from him and he goes, are you talking about Abney? Like, like he's, he's found the case law that I'm talking about. And I email back. Yes, sir. The last sign is 15 miles back. And he said, let me send an investigator out. That was Thursday afternoon late on Monday morning. And he said, he goes, if you're right, I'll dismiss it. Monday morning, he filed the motion to dismiss prior to our hearing on Thursday, and we would have gone to trial the following Monday. Um, so he, he dismissed it. We didn't have to go to trial. Um, because basically the, he didn't, the, the officer didn't have a right to stop that vehicle. There was not specific and articulable facts with reasonable uh, inferences that a crime was being committed because there wasn't a traffic control device there. The motion to suppress, my guy went from facing 25 years to getting his case dismissed. When I called him and told him, he literally started crying. Um, and, I, and he goes, you know, what can I do to thank you? What can I do to thank you? And I said, and I, and I said to my, I said, Peter, I said, the best way to thank me is you've got to get in a program and get clean. Uh, but that motion to suppress completely took away the stop, which then took away all the evidence that my client had met in his possession. A motion to quash indictment. So, so these are a little more rare. Um, literally, once you've been indicted, generally that's the charging instrument. That what, that's what tells you uh, as a defendant what you're being charged with. And I filed, I've only filed two of these, filed my second one yesterday, one of my filed because, well, because they, they, they the, 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 the DA in a rural county said that my guy had committed two offenses, but we only had evidence of one. And so I asked, I was like, where's this other offense? Where's it? And they said, well, it's, it, he, he admits to it. And I'm like, where? And they said, well, he admitted to it in the grand jury. Okay. So I filed a motion to disclose the grand jury testimony for various reasons, had a particularized need. That's what you have to have to get grand jury testimony normally. Uh, and the judge ruled in my favor. We got the grand jury testimony and then we found there might be some problems in the grand jury. And we're actually hearing that motion to quash uh, next week, next Tuesday. Um, I filed that one a year, 11 months ago. We're hearing it Tuesday. Okay, so wheels of justice are slow, slow. Uh, but I think we've got a good option, a good, good piece on that. The one I filed the other just yesterday, um, there are three, three uh, means to commit the offense listed in the statu statute. They list all three, and it says by deception, um, threat, or false document in the statute. They list all three. 
and the DA does not clarify which one. And it normally, if you if you quote the statute, it's presumed to be a good indictment unless there's multiple means or, or methods to commit the crime. And if that's the case, um, then uh, then it's presumed not to be enough because I don't know which one you're charging my client with. So we're asking basically for them to quash the indictment as to as to vagueness. And then finally, a motion to disclose evidence. Um, you file these when you think that there's something out there that you don't have yet. Uh, I had a case where a guy was being charged, um, uh, and in the ref in the in the in the police reports, they talk about two other people being um, uh, being interrogated, being questioned while in custody. And I was like, those are going to become important. And so I filed a motion to disclose evidence so I could get those earlier than later. So I could view them so I could watch them to find out what did they say. Sure enough, they were helpful. My guy's offer got a lot better. Um, he ended up taking a deal. Didn't make it go away, but it got so much better that he couldn't refuse it. It went from being a 15-year offer to being about a five-year offer um, because I fought hard for my client. They're sudden, they, they knew that there were some issues. My guy was probably good for the crime. Um, and it becomes a second. So the next time he's habitual, so next time he, he could be facing 25 to 99 or life. But that motion to disclose, I also filed one the other day. I have a guy who, um, well, we want to look at some physical evidence that's still in the possession of the police department, uh, kind of following a hunch on my part that, that I think will be beneficial at trial and uh, don't really want to talk about it right now because it's, well, it's a fairly big case in this part of the world and don't want to tip my hand too much. Um, not that you're going to tell, but just in case, you know, you become paranoid. Uh, so those are pretrial motions. Those, they become great, great assets uh, in cases. And I've got several motions, motion to suppress, and most often is the one um, where they didn't get a blood, you know, they didn't get a warrant to draw the blood and they should have. Um why, why the stop wasn't a legit stop. Um, plain view doctrine shouldn't have applied. And so, again, we actually talked about the motion to suppress in our podcast. You can learn more about those. It's our, our pilot episode is a motion to suppress. Um, so let's move on. All right. So, man, I've been going. I, I thought I'd go right about an hour. Um, so, so what do I do? This is Stuart Kennard, what is a famous, famous now deceased criminal defense attorney. And this is a saying that he, that he had, and I think it's exactly what most criminal defense attorneys feel like they're doing. We're protecting the Lord's children who have fallen short from perfection from the wrath of those who believe they have attained it. Um, and that's not true of every prosecutor or every jury. But often kind of what you find is, is that you get a you get a, a prosecutor who kind of goes, well, that's what the law says. And they just kind of have this blank look of anyone who would ever break the law, obviously, is a well, maybe a terrible person. Um, well, that might be true. There are some terrible people. I, I've I've been in trial. I've represented some terrible people. But lots of times they're they're not. There it, it was. I literally have a guy who's facing a DWI. He's in his seventies. 
his wife of 50 years past 50 years passed away three months before and he was depressed and went out drinking went out to the graveside had a few drinks driving home gets pulled over and he blows a 0.04 half the legal limit and they still are charging him with a dwi um that that that's that's why i do the job uh, is you kind of go this is not a guy that needs a needs a criminal record this is a guy that needs well somebody basically to give him a hug uh, so anyway that's what i do uh that gives you a pretty good idea of kind of what goes on oh uh, i want to talk a little bit more about the plea agreements i know i've just wrapped up but uh the question of you know how does 75 years become 45 years is one of them um or please without guilt. And I know I'm, I just looked down at my notes uh, and saw that and I wanted to make sure I got back to it. Um, so lots of times that initial offer that 75 years on a heinous crime is what a DA thinks they can get on a heinous crime, aggravated sexual assault of a child. Um, and they don't want to try that case any more than the defense wants to try that case. Well, why? Because it is hard on every person in the room. It's hard on the defense attorney. It's hard on the defendant. And maybe it should be hard on the defendant, right? I mean, if they've really done this, um, it's hard on the prosecutors. It's hard on the judge. It's hard on the bailiffs. They've done studies on juries who've come out of cases like this and out of uh, capital murder cases, especially ones that last, well, really almost regardless of length, but especially if you start talking uh, a week or more. Uh, and they suffer from symptoms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. It is incredibly hard to be in those courtrooms. Well, why? Because the crime, the, the crime is incredibly heinous. Uh, there are often details that just make you uh, almost sick. And so that 75 years, they're like, I know I can get 75 years. I can put you away for the rest of your life, da 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 da, da. But they also have to weigh the cost to the county, the emotional cost, the time it's going to take. And they go, 45 years? Will you do 45? Because on that crime, he has to do at least, at least half. So he's going to do at least 22 and a half years before he's parole eligible and what I've seen on crimes that involve children, especially sexual assault crimes against a child, he's going to do 75 or all of it. Um, and so, so that plea, it may not seem reasonable, but in reality, everyone who has to deal with it kind of goes, I'm going to cut it loose, partly because it is too hard uh, on everyone to, to, to want to do it. And so, that, so you end up getting some pleas that, that are um, maybe to the general public seem unreasonable or unfair. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's really about, um, well, justice is served. You're taking someone and putting them away for 45 years. So, you know, if this person's 25, they're not getting out until they're what, 70. And you spend 45 years in the Texas uh, penitentiary, your life expectancy is not going to be the 80 it is for everyone else. It's going to be much shorter. So there's a decent chance they never see daylight again. Um, so at that point, we're just we're playing with numbers about how we feel, not really about how we're if we're protecting. 
So I just wanted to go back and kind of catch that uh, because because often you know we get asked, how did you get that one worked out? It's that no one wanted to try it because it's so gross. And um, the defendant feels like somehow they have a chance to see daylight again with 45. Uh, and I don't know the exact case that was brought up, but those were the numbers. And the state feels like we've put this person away long enough that they're really not going to be a danger to our society. So oh, in, in plea, plea agreements, again, you know, um, it, it's how 98% of cases work out. I would say I'm less than that. I work out fewer than most because I'm willing to go to trial. Do criminal defense trial attorneys. That's what we are. So you hire us. And one of the questions I'm going to ask is, I've had people ask me, why hire me versus someone else? And I'm like, well, with this, would, you need to hire someone who'd be willing to go to trial on this case. And they'll say, well, I don't want to go to trial. And I'm like, I don't either, but I'm willing to. And the defense attorney who's not willing to go to trial, those offers aren't as good. Um, they're not going to fight on things like pretrial motions. It's going to be much more, how do, how do we work this out? Um, uh, which, which again, most of my cases, but it's probably my, I'm between 90 and 95, not between that 95 and 98% of my cases get worked out. Um, and if you really count the ones that I get beaten with a pretrial motion, I'm really at that probably 90% are not flatly or worked out in other forms, other forms. So want to catch that, catch that again. Um, so anyway, that's what we do. Um, any questions? I think we're good. Um, I will, uh, if anyone has any questions, they are happy to, I'm happy to have you guys email me and then I'll send them to Andrew. Andrew, we really appreciate you um, speaking with us today. Any other questions? If not, I'm going to end the recording and end the webinar. All right. I think that's it. All right. It. No questions. Okay. <laughs> thank you so very much. We appreciate you. All righty. Thank you. I appreciate having the opportunity. Take care. All right, bye.